Let's open up our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 28. Sad to be coming to the end of Acts, but happy that sometime in the coming weeks, I can't tell you exactly when, because we may do a couple topical studies between now and then. But uh, coming up soon enough, we're going to be starting the book of Exodus on Sunday mornings. And that is going to be wonderful. I'm very excited about that. But now we've got a, a great finish to the book of Acts in front of us. So, Father, bless your word to us. Give it attention to your word as we hear your voice. We pray it now in Jesus' name. Amen. We pick it up in Acts chapter 28, starting at verse 7. Paul and the group with him are on the uh, island of Malta. They've come over two weeks of torture on the high seas, being blown all about in a desperate storm where they had no idea where they were going. They had given up all hope of survival, but God's goodness was expressed to them that they would come and they would land. You would say accidentally, but it wasn't an accident. It was the providence of God. Just he was, he was steering that ship, even when no man could steer it, and they landed on the island of Malta. So that journey that began from Jerusalem and then came to Caesarea and stayed a couple of years and then made its way towards Rome, that journey that had lasted more than two weeks out on the open water had now ended at the island of Malta. We saw that last week in the text that we examined how Paul came to the island and they were shipwrecked on the island and there they were. So now we pick up sort of their adventures on the island of Malta starting at verse 7 of Acts chapter 28. Here we go. In that region, there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island, whose name was Publius, who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. Paul went into him and prayed, and he laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. And they honored us in many ways, and when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. So they come to the island of Malta. They survive the shipwreck. They warm themselves by the fire. Paul survives the snake bite. If you don't know what that's about, just read earlier in the chapter. But now here they are. And, and what does God do? Well, God directs them to the leading citizen of the island, the governor, the nicest house there on the island. And that's where they're staying for several days. Isn't that just like the Lord? You're following the Lord. You're trying to do his will. And where does God guide you? First, God guides you for two weeks of absolute misery on a ship where you all think you're going to die for two weeks. And you survive just by the skin of your teeth. And it's two weeks of misery and crying out to God. Then what does God have you for you next? Well, the five-star hotel there on the island of Malta. And that's just kind of how it is in this life we live for the Lord. But, you know, Paul knew something. He knew something, and he says it in his letters. He said, I've learned that whenever state I'm in, to be content. You know, I'll be content whether it's the two weeks of misery on the ship. I'll be content when it's a five-star resort on the island of Malta. It doesn't really matter. My life isn't lived in those things. My life isn't lived in those circumstances. My life is lived in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul knew that. So what a blessing. You know, it's a nice little uh, reward or respite from their torturous weeks out on the Mediterranean Sea. But while they're there at the house, they meet the father of the leading citizen on the island of Malta. And the father is sick with this form of dysentery. He's, he's very ill. And so what do they do for him? They lay hands on him, Paul does, and they pray for him and he's healed. Now, isn't that remarkable? Paul just goes and he lays hands on him, prays for him. And what happens? The man gets healed of his affliction. And all I can say is that God does that. God did it in Paul's day. God does that in our day. We see it. 
We invite people to come up for prayer on Sunday. We pray for people all through the week. We lay hands on people who are afflicted. And you know what? Sometimes they're gloriously healed. And I'll just simply say, you should be doing this. It's not like you have to be an officially ordained you know, minister or go through Bible college or seminary to lay hands on somebody and pray for them that they be healed. But I'll tell you what hinders us from doing it so often. You know, you don't do it because why? What if they don't get healed? Then maybe I'll embarrass myself or I'll embarrass God. Friends, can I just say, get that out of your mind. One of the best things I ever heard on this subject, I heard it secondhand. I heard it from a pastor friend of mine named Nick Long, but he heard it from the man who was his pastor when he lived in Seattle, from Wayne Taylor. And this is what I heard. It was so wise. It simply said this, when you pray for somebody to be healed, you are not responsible that they're healed. That's God's business. You just pray in faith. You're not responsible that they're healed, but you are responsible that they're loved. You can do that, can't you? Can't you pray for somebody in faith that they'd be healed? Leave the healing to God, but know that it's your job to make sure they're loved. Listen, when you do that, you're going to see God move in some miraculous ways. You do what God's given you to do, and you'll see God answer in the ways that only he can do. So that was wonderful what happened there in verse 8. But now I want you to see what happened in verse 9. After that healing, people heard about it on the island. And it says that the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. Suddenly, everybody wanted Paul and the other people in his group to pray for them to be healed. And many of them were healed. And it was wonderful to see. Now, here's what I want you to grab, though. And it's a sort of a subtlety that you would only know if you had some access to either the original language yourself or the the commentary on the original language. The word that's used in verse 9 for and were healed is not the normal word in the New Testament for people being healed. It's not the normal word. It's actually the word that means to receive medical attention. Now, I find this fascinating because who was one of the people with Paul? Luke. And what was Luke's profession? Well, Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, calls him the beloved physician. Luke was a doctor. So I don't have any doubt that some of the people that they prayed for after this were miraculously healed, excuse me. But I also believe that there's probably no doubt, just because of the word that Luke uses there, that Luke gave them medical attention and they were healed through the practice of medicine. And it just makes me say, praise the Lord for that. I mean, praise the Lord that God heals supernaturally and God heals through medical science. The the two don't contradict each other at all. It's a beautiful thing to see both of them working together and Luke pretty much serving as a medical missionary there on the island of Malta. Right, continuing on now, verse 11. And after three months, we sailed in an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brothers, which had wintered on the island. After landing at Syracuse, we stayed three days. From there, we circled around and reached Regium. And after one day, the south wind blew. And the next day, we came to Petoli. And we found brethren and were invited to stay with them seven days. And so we went towards Rome. And from there, when the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us as far as Appi Forum and three inns. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Okay, so you get the scene? Verse 11 tells us that it was three months on Malta. They were regaining their strength after that near crisis and everybody dying on the ship. 
They were waiting for winter to end because they wanted to go out when the weather was nicer. But eventually, three months later, they take off from Malta, and their first stop is Syracuse. Well, that's the first stop along the way. That's a prominent city on the island of Sicily. So they just go up north a little bit from Malta to Syracuse. Then they go up from Syracuse, verses 13 and 14, from Regium to Petoli, and then on towards Rome. They're just working their way up northward now. They're on that Italian peninsula making their way towards Rome. And what do they find along the way? Well, did you see it there? We found brethren and were invited to stay with them seven days. You know what I think is wonderful about that? There's a church there at Regium or Petoli. There's a community of Christians. And we know nothing about how they were founded. Isn't that beautiful? Doesn't it remind you that the book of Acts is a very incomplete story? There were other missionaries. There were other Apostle Pauls, so to speak. There were other people out doing the work, planting churches, seeing communities grow up. Because when they went to these places where no apostle had ever been before, there were already churches there. It's just this beautiful, organic work of the Holy Spirit. But eventually they come up to this place, verse 15, to Apiforum and the three inns. Now, this is right outside the city of Rome. No, let me take that back. It's not right outside the city of Rome. It's about 43 miles from the city of Rome. Apiforum. And what does it say there? It says, verse 15, when the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us as far as Apiforum and three inns. Do you understand what happened? Christians in Rome said, Paul's on the way. Let's walk out and meet him. Let's go walk 43 miles to meet the Apostle Paul. Now, in the ancient world, look, they were a lot tougher than we are today. 43 miles was a long day's march. You would do it in a day. You could do it in a day. But it's like you really had to, okay, let's go out and do this. And you had to be serious about it. But that was a long day's march. They said, I know, let's go walk a whole day. And do I need to remind you? Walk back a whole day. They couldn't just get back on the train and take it back. Let's walk back a whole day just to go and greet the Apostle Paul. This shows how much they loved Paul. Say, how would they ever love Paul? Paul's never been to Rome before. Well, what did he do? A few years before that, Paul wrote them a letter. Do you remember that? What's that letter called in the New Testament? Romans. Look at that. You're all Bible scholars. You knew exactly what it would be called. Paul wrote that letter to the Romans because having never visited Rome, he wanted to teach them something about theology. He wanted to teach them something about God's work in this world and the gospel of Jesus Christ and how to live as a Christian. And he writes this beautiful letter to him. And there was such a warm, endearing relationship between Paul and the Romans. They loved him so much that they came out and greeted him. And I'll tell you, they greeted him like they would greet an emperor or a general who was coming into the city because that's exactly what they would do in the Roman world. A large group of people would walk out for miles and miles to meet the emperor or the general before he came in, and they would treat him like a conquering hero as they came into the city. This is what the Romans are saying to Paul. The Roman Christians are saying, we love you, we appreciate you, you're our hero, let us come greet you. And that's exactly what they did. They came in with that idea. No wonder, look at it at the end of verse 15, Paul says, he thanked God and took courage. Lord, I see that you finally brought me here. You brought me here through the shipwreck. You brought me here despite the snake. You didn't let the soldiers kill me. You brought me here all the way. I thank God he has fulfilled his promise to me. I just want you to think about just for a moment. 
that right now today you can thank God and take courage over some promise that God has fulfilled in your life. Well, I know some of you, you may be sort of aching here this morning because there's some promise that you feel is unfulfilled in your life. God, you've given me a promise for my child and it's not fulfilled yet. You give me a promise for my career and it's not fulfilled yet. You give me a promise for peace and a settledness and I don't see it fulfilled in my life yet. On and on and on. But I tell you, even though what, there may be things unfulfilled in your life, I bet almost everybody here can point to some promise that God has fulfilled in your life. Well, shouldn't you look at that promise fulfilled and say, I thank God and I take courage. His past Faithfulness to me is a promise of his continued work in my life. And that's exactly what Paul did. And so now verse 16, sort of the words we've been waiting for all the time, the last several chapters, verse 16, now when we came to Rome. There's Paul walking into the great city of Rome. Rome was unlike any other city in the ancient world. Rome was its own thing. Yes, you had other great cities. You had Antioch, you had Ephesus, you had, you had Alexandria. Yes, they were great cities, but nothing like Rome. In a day and age when a large city might number 10 or 20,000 people, Rome had a population of 2 million. It was the greatest, grandest, most spectacular city, the center of power all over the world. And when Paul walked into Rome, Rome had been a city for more than 800 years already. The Colosseum hadn't been built yet. There were other great buildings. There were temples to Jupiter. There were palaces of Caesar. There was a great temple to Mars. It was a spectacular city in Paul's day. And he came here and he said, now I have finally come to Rome. The gospel has already been here. There's already a Christian community. But now I am here and God has brought me to Rome just exactly as he promised. Way back in Acts chapter 19, Paul determined that he would go to Rome. And then in Acts chapter 23, Jesus promised Paul that he would make it to Rome, and he did, despite any obstacle. Verse 16 again. Now when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. I don't think there was probably ever a centurion more happy to deliver his prisoners successfully than Julius, this particular centurion, was. With all they had been through over the past weeks on the ship, He says, yes, thank you. I don't know if Paul won Julius to the Lord, but I believe probably pretty close. You you would almost guess it to be a certainty that he did. But finally, he was able to deliver those prisoners, saying, here they are. The work is finished. They've all survived. They're, They're ready to be delivered over to you. And Julius had done his job. Therefore, Paul, Paul was now able to live in his own house. You saw that there in verse 16. He was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. You see, Paul wasn't just thrown into a pit of a prison. He wasn't a condemned man, not yet. He was going to appear before Caesar. So what was happening? They put him under some form of house arrest. He was allowed, and we learn this later in the chapter, he was allowed to rent his own house, live there under Roman guard, sort of like with one of those, you know, ankle bracelets where you can't leave your house. It's just sort of protective custody there. You can't leave the house. You got to stay there, but you'll be guarded by a Roman soldier. Now, it's very interesting how this worked. They would change the soldiers out every four hours. So every four hours, they would unlock the chain that connected them to Paul. A new soldier would come and would sit down next to Paul, just feet away from him, chained to the Apostle Paul to make sure that he didn't get away. Could you imagine how those would go every day? New soldier comes in. Hi, Paul. What's your name? Hi, nice to meet you. What do you want to talk about? Oh, I don't know. What do you want to talk about? Well, 
I know what we can talk about. Let's talk about why I'm here. Let's talk about Jesus. Can you imagine how many of those soldiers Paul led to Christ? over there? Every four hours he had a new soldier. Every four hours Paul would just kind of ring the bell or put the new number up on the screen. Next. Now, this was so successful that Paul, writing in the book of Philippians, which he wrote from this time, Paul wrote in Philippians that many uh, of the Roman palace guard had even believed in Christ. And no doubt it was because of this connection that Paul had with them. One after another. What an amazing work that Paul did. And I love Paul's just heart, his attitude here. He doesn't say, oh, my ministry's over. I can't go where I want to. Oh, I can't serve God because I've got this chain on my wrist. Oh, Lord, who will deliver me? He says, no, they're going to come to me. That's fine. I'll just serve God whichever way I can. And that's exactly what he did. And so Paul did a glorious work there, but his heart wasn't only to speak to the guards who guarded him, but look at it there, verse 17. And it came to pass that after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. You see, Paul had a pattern. Every time he went to a city, he always wanted to speak to the Jews and the leaders of the Jews first. This is because Paul believed something very deep in his heart. He described it in the letter he wrote to the Romans in chapter 1. He said that the gospel of God is revealed and it's here to, to explain God's plan, but it's given to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. And so Paul just always had that in his heart. Wherever I have the opportunity, I want to speak to the Jewish people first. I'm one of them. They're on my heart. Jesus was a Jew. All the apostles were Jew. Let, let, Jews. Let, let's do that. So what does Paul do? Well, normally he would go into a synagogue when he came into a city. But now he doesn't have the freedom. He's got that chain on his wrist. So what does he do? He calls for the leaders of the Jewish community to come see him. And many of them do. That's what's described in verse 17. And it came to pass after three days, Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. So when they had come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, though I have done nothing wrong against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans who, when they had examined me, wanted to let me go because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar. Not that I have anything of which to accuse my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have called for you to see you, to speak with you, because of for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. I love Paul's explanation. It's a little apology. It's a little, uh, well, uh, apologetic, I should say, to these, Ro- uh, to these Jewish leaders from Rome. He starts off by saying in verse 17, men and brethren. He wanted them to know, I haven't forsaken my Judaism. I'm a brother just like you. I'm still a faithful Jew. Simply, I want to tell you about the Messiah that I found. Secondly, he says also in verse 17, I have done nothing wrong against our people or the customs of our fathers. I haven't disgraced Judaism in any way. I'm not talking to you about tearing down Judaism. I'm talking to you about fulfilling it in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Thirdly, this is in verse 18, he says, When they had examined me, they wanted to let me go. What's the idea there? Well, the idea there is simply, hey, fellas, the Romans knew I was innocent. Every part along the way, they knew I was innocent. They just simply wanted to let me go. So he wanted to make that clear to them. And then finally, verse 20, don't miss this one. He says, because for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. Why am I in Roman custody? Why am I a prisoner destined to speak before Caesar? I'll tell you why. I am bound for this chain because of the hope of Israel. Now, what is the hope of Israel? It's their Messiah. 
because of the Messiah of Israel, their hope, the focus of their longings and dreams. That's why I'm bound with this. And with that cliffhanger, wondering, well, what do you mean by all this, Paul? Paul says, well, tell me now what you've heard of me. Verse 21, he says, then they said to him, we received, excuse me, we neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who came reported or spoken any evil of you. But we desire to hear from you what you think, for concerning this sect, we know that it's spoken against everywhere. Notice this first. Paul says, what have you guys heard about me? And the Jewish leaders said, we haven't heard anything about you. Nobody's spoken evil against you. We haven't received any letters from Judea. We don't know anything about you, Paul. But we want to hear what you have to say. Did you notice that in verse 22? For concerning this sect, we know that it is spoken against everywhere. Paul, we don't know you. We don't know what you're about. We don't know anything about these Christians, these followers of Jesus. But we do know this. Everybody talks bad about them. That's what I do know. I wonder if there's not people here this morning just exactly in that same place. You don't know a whole lot about Jesus. You don't even know a lot about Christianity. But this is what you do know. There's a lot of people who say bad things about Christians. I would just advise you to have the same heart as these Jewish leaders did in Acts chapter 28. What was their attitude? Listen, we've heard some bad things about Christianity. So we don't want to hear any more. No. They said, we've heard some bad things about Christianity. Paul, why don't you explain it to us? We want to hear from you. And I think that these Jewish leaders should be commended for their desire to hear the story from Paul and not just to take it on the bad things that they've heard from other people. So great. Look at it here, verse 23. So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging to whom he explained. Now, I love this. Listen carefully to these words. To whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken and some disbelieved. Wouldn't you love to hear that Bible study that Paul gave to them? From morning till evening, the, the Jewish leaders, and I don't know how many of them were, there were, I don't know, 10, 20 30? I don't know. Just make up a number in your mind. It says many. I don't know exactly what many means. Many of them gathered together before Paul and said, Okay, Paul, here it is. It's morning time. Explain to us. So they talk. They discuss. He answers questions. He opens the scrolls. He says, Look at this. Examine this. Have you thought about this? Look at this fulfilled prophecy. Let me show you Jesus here. Let, did you know he was born in Bethlehem? Well, no, we did. Well, he was born in Bethlehem. Well, did you know he's fulfilling the suffering Messiah, the suffering servant passages from Isaiah 53? No, we didn't know that. He goes through. He explains. It's a beautiful time. Just a powerful thing. I would love to be able to see that Bible study. It, it is our cherished hope that there's some media of this that God will show it to us in heaven. Could, could it really be heaven if you couldn't know exactly, if you couldn't see this and sit on and have it with subtitles or something you could understand? I suppose we'll be able to understand everything in heaven. But, oh, just what a beautiful, from morning till evening, he explained to them. I think Paul never had more fun talking to people and trying to persuade them of who Jesus is and what he came to do. But then finally, notice it here. Verse 24, here's the upshot of it. Some were persuaded by the things which were spoken and some disbelieved. Well, I mean, actually, isn't that always how it is? Not everybody's going to respond to the message. 
Thank you, Jesus, that some people responded. He spoke to that group, 10, 20, 30. We don't know how many it was. But some of them said, yes, Paul, I see it. My eyes are opened. Jesus is the Messiah. I'm persuaded. I'm persuaded not because you're so eloquent, Paul, but I'm persuaded because I see it in the scriptures. I'm persuaded because I know there's something telling me that it's true. And that's the Holy Spirit of God testifying to it in my heart. I believe. And I'll just simply say that can be you today. Why not? Why not believe? Why not just see this word and say, God, I know you're true. I know what Jesus did for me on the cross needs to be my salvation. Why not just be persuaded? How long are you going to put up the fight? How long until you just say, no, this is what I need to believe. This is what I need to follow. Well, some were persuaded, but, but, look at it there at the end of verse 24, some disbelieved. And that's how it is too, isn't it? And this is the wonderful thing about God. God isn't coercive. God isn't going to make you believe against your will. If you choose to not believe, God, well, at least in some sense, I can say, God will respect that choice. And with a tear down God's face, so to speak, I'm speaking figuratively here, God will say, go your own way. I've given you this. You can be persuaded or you can disbelieve, but here it is right in front of you. Now, I find verse 25 fascinating. Notice this in verse 25. It says, So when they did not agree among themselves. That's the first part of verse 25. Now look, I, I don't, I don't mean to be stereotypical in a negative sense here, but I'm just saying that Jewish people, especially from that part of the world, when they disagree amongst themselves, it's usually energetic. And again, I don't mean to speak stereotypically in a negative way, but I think you know what I'm talking about. They sort of like to argue back and forth. They get, you know, the voices get raised, the emotions get up. When I read verse 25, they did not agree amongst themselves. Can you picture that in your mind? Now, please, this is not Paul arguing with them. This is those who were persuaded arguing with those who did not yet believe. They're the ones... Well, no, what do you mean this doesn't make sense to you? He explained it all. Are you kidding? They're going back and forth fighting about this. So what does Paul do? It says, they departed after Paul had said one word. Paul says, guys, stop, stop, stop. Stop arguing amongst yourself just for one moment. I've got one last thing to say to you. And I believe Paul turned to those who disbelieved. Paul, I don't know why I made this side of the sanctuary, those who disbelieved. I'm sorry. (laughs) But Paul turned to those who disbelieved and he said this. He said, notice, we're quoting now from the text. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. Wow. Paul just drops a little bomb right in front of the people who did not believe. And I just want you to understand what he said to them. He said, it's true what Isaiah the prophet said about you all. He said to you that you hear the words, but you don't understand. That you see what God is doing, but you do not perceive it. And this is your problem. It's right in front of you, but you don't 
grasp it. Essentially, Isaiah said in this passage, and Paul said it a little bit later, he said, if you reject Jesus, you'll hear, but you'll never understand. You'll see, but you'll never perceive. Your heart is, and it will be hard. Your ears will be closed, and your eyes will be shut, because you really don't want to turn to God and be healed of your sin. That's why you disbelieve. Now, that's a message that's just as true today as it was when Isaiah first said it and when Paul quoted it. Many hear and do not perceive or understand simply because they don't want to turn to God and be healed of their sin. And look, I I just want to speak very straightforwardly to you about this. Sometimes I worry if I'm unnecessarily ruffling feathers or offending people. And it's not my heart to do that just for the sake of doing it. But I just feel if I stand before you with an open Bible to proclaim God's truth, that I'm responsible to do it. And here's just simply the message I want to bring. Be clear about the choice you're making. If you choose to reject Jesus Christ and cling to your own way, to not turn to him and to hold on to your sin, then just be very clear about what you're doing. You're closing your eyes, you're stopping your ears, and you're determining, I'm going to reject all that. Why? Because I'd rather live my own way. And as much as anything, what Paul was telling them to do was just to be real about the choice you're making. Look, you can fool me, you can fool other people, but... In some sense, that doesn't really matter. But please, in the name of God, don't fool yourself about the choice that you're making. Be crystal clear about it in your mind. And if at the end of the game, that's the choice you want to make, then God, for all eternity, will honor that choice. But I pray you'll make another choice. You pray, I want to see and perceive. I want to hear and understand. I want a soft heart and an open soul towards the Lord. And you turn to him and he'll give it to you. Well, Paul wasn't done with him. Look at verse 28. He applies this now. He says, therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they'll hear it. If you don't want it, other people will hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute amongst themselves. I'll just let you picture that in your own mind. They walked away arguing, not with Paul, but with each other. Because some believed, some were persuaded, and some disbelieved. Now this brings us to the last two verses of Acts. I can hardly believe it. Fifty-seven studies we've had through the book of Acts. Over a year, and now we come to the last couple verses, but they're glorious. Then Paul dwelt... Two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, nobody forbidding him. Paul spent two years at Caesarea before he got on the ship. Then he spent two years in uh, Rome before his trial before Caesar. He lived in his own rented house, and he says, as verse 30 says, he received everybody who came to him. Well, Paul couldn't go out. He was under house arrest. But what does he do? Open house every day at Paul's house. So one person knock at his door. Who is it? He opens up the door, and it's a slave. A slave named Onesimus. And Paul says, I know you. You're Onesimus. I know your master, Philemon. You've escaped, haven't you? 
And Onimus goes, yes, I did. And Paul says, let's work this out. I'll write your master a letter. And that's what happened there. And what did he do? He preached the kingdom of God and he taught the things, verse 31, which concerned the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence. Now, I don't know, maybe two years of house arrest would shake your confidence. It didn't shake Paul's. Paul woke up every day and said, I can't go out. I don't have the freedom. I can't go out to Corinth or Ephesus or these other places. But you know what? God has me right here and he'll bring the people to me that I need to minister to. And that's what happened. He said, I'll talk to everybody who comes my way. I'll preach to every Roman soldier I'm chained to. Anybody who wants to hear from me, they can come. And you know what I'll do as well? I'll start writing some letters. So let me write a letter to the Ephesians. It was written from this Roman imprisonment. Let me write to the Philippians. Let me write to the Colossians. Paul wrote those letters from this Roman imprisonment, and aren't we glad that he did? Aren't we glad that he had the time to think through those things and to put it down on a scroll for us so many years later? Here's my point. Those two years were not wasted. God didn't waste Paul's time, and he won't waste our time. Well, what happened to Paul? Well, since the text ends here, it's reasonable to believe that Luke compiled both his gospel and the book of Acts to be sort of an information brief for Paul before he went on his trial before Caesar. I mean, who is this Jesus that Paul preaches? Luke says, read my gospel and you'll find out. Well, who's this Paul and how did he come into my court? Read the book of Acts and you'll find out. But according to fairly reliable church tradition and history, Paul had his appearance before Caesar, and he preached the gospel to Caesar Nero. Now, by the way, Caesar Nero is famous as being sort of a crazy emperor. There's some historical evidence that he didn't go off the rails into madness until after Paul preached to him. It may very well be that his rejection of the gospel played a role in his descent into madness. And he became later a famous persecutor of the Christians and was even said to be responsible for the later martyrdom of the Apostle Paul. Because by all accounts, as much as we know, Paul was released from this Roman imprisonment. Caesar said, I find you not guilty. Get out of my court. And Paul had another four or five years of freedom where he went around ministering to churches around the Roman Empire, but he ended up back in Rome under arrest, and somewhere around the year 66 or 67 A.D., he was beheaded for the honor of dying for his Lord Jesus Christ. But as we leave the book of Acts, look what it says, verse 31. No one forbidding him. Nobody stopping him. The idea behind that is completely unhindered. And think about how glorious it is. God's work, God's message, it's unhindered. It's unchained. The sea couldn't kill him. The soldiers couldn't kill him. The snake couldn't kill him. The indifference of those who disbelieved couldn't end it. God's message went out. No one forbidding him. And friends, that's exactly where we come to today. Great thing about the book of Acts, in some sense, and I only mean this in some sense, but in some sense, Is this not the book still being written among God's people today? When we have missionaries going to Ethiopia, is not the book of Acts still being written? When we have interns that we're training up and raising out and pushing out and serving God, is not the book of Acts still being written? When you have God's work going forth in ways small and large, in ways obvious, in ways subtle, the book of Acts is still being written. No one forbidding it. Now, here's what you have to ask. God Where's my place in your ongoing work of writing the book of Acts? 
That's what I want to pray for you about right now. So let's pray together. Father, I thank you for these, uh, these many weeks that we've gone through this amazing book of your holy word. And now, Lord, as we remember it, we say, Lord, your work really is unstoppable. Oh, I know that in certain times, in certain places, it looks discouraging. And we pray for every day to be an obvious advance. But Lord, even when we can't see it, your work goes on. Jesus, we thank you for being the Lord and the shepherd of your church. And we pray that you'd continue to write out your work in each of us. We love you, Lord. Keep that work continuing in us and through us for the glory of Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.